thank you for joining me. I will talk about what seems to be the start of the ground invasion. It looks like Netanyahu is going in today, a ground invasion in Gaza. This is the mop-up for October 28th, 2023. I'm David Feldman. Please like this episode. That's the best way I can stay in your feed. And uh, share it with your friends. Subscribe to my channel. And of course, leave a comment. Uh, Longtime listeners to this show know I read all your comments. I have a quick correction. I misspoke yesterday morning when I said President Biden's approval rating had sunk to 30 percent. I misread the number. It's not that bad. His approval rating is at 37 percent, not 30 percent. I apologize. I will talk about the ground invasion later on in the show. Donald Trump's legal troubles in Georgia are about to be replayed in Arizona. If you recall, back in May, Arizona Attorney General Chris Mays, a Democrat, launched a criminal probe into her state's false elector scheme orchestrated by Donald Trump's lawyers, all of whom were indicted in that Georgia RICO trial for the same exact crime. During the past three months, it was always assumed the focus of the Arizona case would be on the 11 fake Trump electors who attempted to defraud Congress and the people of Arizona by filing false documents claiming they were authorized electors when, in fact, Joe Biden won Arizona. And so his electors were duly certified. It was assumed that was going to be the thrust of the case. But the Washington Post reports that the scope of the Arizona investigation has now expanded into the pressure campaign that the Trump White House waged on local Arizona election officials, as well as top Republican leaders in that state, like Rusty Bowers, who was Speaker of the Arizona House at the time. What you're looking at right now in George's RICO trial has the distinct possibility of being replayed all over again in Arizona. And it's not double jeopardy. Separate crimes in separate states. Prosecutors salivate over cases that are slam dunks. They love putting easy numbers up on the board. And since the Fulton County District Attorney Fawny Willis's RICO prosecution seems to be working out perfectly, She's toppling one domino after another. You can be certain that other state prosecutors are tempted to pick up easy wins by piggybacking onto her research and issuing their own criminal indictments. She did all the dirty work. This could conceivably spell a lifetime of court appointments and jury trials for lowlifes like The three attorneys who just flipped down in Georgia, Jenna Ellis, Kenneth Cheesebro and Sidney Powell, as well as Donald Trump, Mark Meadows and Rudy Giuliani. By the way, Jenna Ellis's law license is once again being challenged in her home state of Colorado after she pled guilty last week. Making this doubly problematic for Donald Trump is 
Fonnie Willis, the Fulton County District Attorney, has done much of the legwork for prosecutors in other states. Prosecutors, say, in Arizona, Michigan, or Nevada, where phony electors also convened and whose fraudulent certificates were then illegally forwarded to Washington, D.C. If I were Kenneth Cheesebro, the attorney who wrote the memos outlining the false elector scheme and who provided the phony documentation for the electors to fill out, I'd be nervous. Any place where phony electors convened, he is subject to indictment once again, as is Rudy Giuliani. On Monday, Donald Trump's civil fraud trial in New York State enters its fifth week, and it's moving at quite a clip. Originally scheduled to go all the way through mid-December, it now looks like prosecutors will be resting their case in about two weeks. The Messenger reports that Donald Trump will take the witness stand in his civil fraud trial on November 6, exactly one year from Election Day. Also expected to testify soon will be his two adult idiot sons, Don Jr. and Eric Trump. I don't know if you saw the taped depositions they did during the discovery phase of this trial, but it's worth watching on YouTube. Don Jr. revealed that despite graduating from Wharton, he possesses absolutely no ability to read a ledger sheet. It's going to be a fun trial. Unfortunately, none of it will be televised. None of it. But there is a ray of hope. On Friday, Judge Tanya Chutkin, who's presiding over the Washington, D.C. election interference case, she asked prosecutors and Trump's attorneys if they would like the trial scheduled for next March to be televised. Federal trials are rarely, if ever, televised, but Judge Tanya made the offer when she heard Judge Mathis might be looking for a co-host and they need to see a demo reel first. Ivanka Trump thought she could stay out of this, but the judge in this case ruled she must obey that subpoena served by New York State Attorney General Letitia James, and she must testify. The judge gave her roughly a week to run it through the appeals process, but she is expected to lose and expected to testify as early as next week. Originally, Ivanka was named one of the co-defendants, but she hired her own lawyer who got her charges dismissed. Somehow they were able to convince an appellate court that statutes of limitations made it impossible to charge her. They say she was working inside the Oval Office when these crimes were committed. But then again, so was Donald Trump. And he's on trial, so I don't understand why she hasn't been folded back into this case, especially since new testimony from Michael Cohen and a request to enter her most recent credit card statements into evidence suggests that Letitia James wants to throw her right back into the mix. It'll be interesting to see how Ivanka tries to save herself and bears witness against her father, and it's going to be tough for Donald. He can't trash-talk his own daughter the way he trash-talks all the other women who testify against him in court. 
especially since he's already gone on record repeatedly saying that Ivanka is his type. Lawyers for Ivanka said she no longer lives in New York and doesn't do business in New York and is therefore immaterial to this case. But New York state prosecutors countered that Ivanka still owns properties in New York and still does business in New York. And she was the point person with lenders for Trump's Washington, D.C. old post office hotel. Up until 2017, she served as one of the Trump Organization's executive vice presidents. So where, how does the statute of limitations play into this? She's very much intertwined with the Trump Organization. Well, after listening to both sides of this argument, Judge Engeron decided Ivanka had to obey the subpoena, telling the courtroom, I want to see her in person. That is how we prefer testimony Unquote. The week of November 6 has been scheduled for testimony from all three of Trump's idiot adult children, as well as the former president. Judge Arthur Engeron joked, quote, we like to keep families together. Not sure if it was a veiled reference to Trump's failed immigration policy, but the whole family is going to testify together starting uh, around November 6. Should be fun. Unfortunately, it's not being televised. Just after the United Auto Workers reached a tentative agreement with Ford, round-the-clock negotiations with General Motors and Stellantis, they own Chrysler, these negotiations are now suggesting the union is closing in on a deal that could bring an end to the six-week strike. New reporting says the two auto companies are prepared to match Ford's offer. One day after a resolution was introduced in Congress to remove him from office, George Santos pled not guilty in a Long Island federal courtroom to charges of stealing from his campaign. The freshman Republican lawmaker's trial is now set for next September, and he has already signaled he's planning to run for re-election. The GOP primary for his seat is scheduled for June. We're going to miss him. We're going to miss him. President Biden met with Muslim leaders, including Minnesota Attorney General Keith Ellison, on Thursday inside the Oval Office to discuss the war between Israel and Hamas. Biden was told he needs to do a better job showing compassion for the plight of Palestinians in Gaza and push harder for a ceasefire that allows humanitarian aid to flow in. Biden has taken a lot of flack since he stated on Wednesday that the numbers coming out of Gaza regarding deaths and casualties cannot be trusted since they were being compiled by Hamas, which he considers a terrorist organization. Hamas, however, is the duly elected governing body in that territory. On Wednesday, President Biden warned these are unreliable numbers, and he added Quote, I'm sure innocents have been killed, but that's the price of waging a war. On Thursday, Admiral John Kirby, President Biden's national security spokesman, warned the death counts coming from Gaza can't be trusted. He said on Thursday, quote, the Gaza Ministry of Health is just a front for Hamas, a terrorist organization. We can't take anything coming out of Hamas, including the so-called Ministry of Health, 
at face value. Admiral Kirby clarified, however, he didn't dispute that thousands of Palestinians, many of them innocent civilians, have been killed by Israeli strikes so far. Philippe Lazzarini, who heads the UN Agency for Palestine Refugees, challenged the Biden administration's assertions on Friday, telling reporters that the Palestinian Ministry of Health in Gaza is a reliable source for information when it comes to deaths and casualties. Yesterday, the Palestinian Ministry of Health reported at least 7,326 Palestinians have been killed and more than 18,000 injured since Israel began its attacks following Hamas's October 7th massacre, killing at least 1,400 and taking more than 200 hostage. Take a look at this. New York City's Grand Central Station was shut down Friday night by hundreds of Jewish and pro-Palestinian peace activists demanding a ceasefire between Israel and Hamas. Jewish Voices for Peace staged the protest, holding signs that say, Jews demand ceasefire now. Train travel came to a complete halt, stranding passengers trying to get to Connecticut. And knowing people from Connecticut, if they didn't hate Jews and Arabs before, they do now. You're listening to The Mop-Up for October 28th, 2023. I'm David Feldman. Please like this episode so I remain in your feed. Please subscribe to my channel and my newsletter. Share this with your friends, please, and leave a comment. Uh, I read all your comments. Police in Maine late Friday night announced they had recovered the body of the suspect in the mass shooting that killed at least 18 and wounded 13 others. Robert Card, who had been on the run since late Wednesday night, was reportedly found dead from a self-inflicted gunshot. Wednesday's shooting was the deadliest of the year. There have now been at least 566 mass shootings this year, according to the Gun Violence Archive. The new Republican Speaker Mike Johnson has had a busy two days on the job, and he's working hard, threading the needle, playing to his Republican caucus, playing the role of the authoritarian theocrat, but also playing to American voters who all pretty much hate this guy's guts. I mean, nobody wants what these right-wing lunatics want. It's why they have to steal elections. The Biden administration went on attack Friday after the newly elected Republican Speaker of the House, Mike Johnson, they went after him for saying right after the mass shooting up in Maine that killed 18, he said, now is not the time to discuss gun control. Unless you're on the phone with the NRA scrounging up campaign cash. Asked about the shooting on Friday, Speaker Johnson said, quote, the problem is the human heart. It's not guns. It's not the weapons. At the end of the day, we have to protect the right of the citizens to protect themselves and that's the Second Amendment. And that's why our party stands so strongly for that, unquote. He's saying there's not a problem with guns. There's a problem with the human heart. Yeah, you don't have one. You're beholden to the gun manufacturers, you prick. A Biden administration spokesman said, quote, we absolutely reject the offensive accusation that gun crime is uniquely high in the United States because of Americans' hearts. 
gun crime is uniquely high in the United States because congressional Republicans have spent decades choosing the gun industry's lobbyists over the lives of innocent Americans, unquote. Say what you want about the Biden administration, but he's been on top of the assault weapons ban throughout his presidency. He's done everything he can to rein in the gun manufacturers. Here is Mike Johnson talking to a conservative crowd, bemoaning no-fault divorces, as well as other sins of the left, and blaming those sins for the epidemic of school shootings in America. This was, I think, a year ago. You remember in the late 60s, we invented things like no-fault divorce laws. We invented uh, the sexual revolution. We invented um, uh, radical feminism. We invented legalized abortion in 1973, where the, the, the state, the government, sanctions the killing of the unborn. I mean, we know that we're living in a completely amoral society. And so people say, how can a young person go into their schoolhouse and open fire on their classmates? Because we've taught a whole generation, a couple of generations now of Americans, that there is no right and wrong. Well, well, it does look like uh, Johnson is tailing, tailoring his words now for a national audience ever since he became speaker. He's fudging, he's hedging, he's hiding th that he's a theocrat, a fascist theocrat. For example, he's hiding who he really is. He has been a no-nonsense advocate for a national abortion ban, but there he was on Fox News Thursday lying about what he truly believes. This is what they do. They lie. He was asked about abortion on Fox News Thursday night, and he seemed to imply that now that Roe has been reversed, it should be left to the individual states to decide. He doesn't believe that. He said the federal government could never find a national consensus on abortion. He's suggesting that he wouldn't push for a national abortion ban. He's built his entire career pushing for a national abortion ban he is a liar. In fact, this is what he tweeted out after the Dobbs decision last year overruling, overturning Roe v. Wade. Breaking. Look how this is celebratory. This is June 25th, 2022. Late yesterday, the Louisiana Department of Health informed abortion facilities in our state that the right to life has now been restored. Perform an abortion and get imprisoned at hard labor for one to 10 years and find 10000 to $100,000. This guy is all in on banning abortions. On Fox News, he lied again Thursday. He was asked about gay marriage. He said the Supreme Court in the Obergefell decision of 2015 made it the law of the land. And as a constitutional attorney, I accept that and we must move on. No, he does not accept that, okay? He was an attorney for the Alliance Defending Freedom, which files lawsuits all over the country, making sure bakers don't have to bake a cake for same-sex weddings. Here is what this lying prick, this lying theocratic prick, wrote when the Supreme Court struck down Texas's anti-sodomy laws in Lawrence versus Texas. This is what he wrote. He wrote, prescriptions against sodomy have deep roots in religion. 
politics and law. States have always maintained the right to discourage the evils of sexual conduct outside marriage, and the state is right to discriminate between heterosexual and homosexual conduct since the latter cannot occur within the confines of marriage. This is what he really believes. He goes on to write, there is clearly no right to sodomy in the Constitution and the right of privacy of the home. This is, right, the crypto-libertarian, he claims, says there's no right to privacy of the home. It's never, uh, it has never placed all activity within the home outside the bounds of the criminal law. What about drugs? What about them? What about prostitution? What about it? And counterfeiting. <laughs> counterfeiting. He writes, Scalia is right. As sodomy laws are not motivated by hatred and bigotry, Lawrence was not about the persecution of minority, whether states have the authority uh, to mandate, regulate dangerous sexual conduct. And uh, according to the six judicial activists, at our nation's highest court, they no longer do. By closing these bedroom doors, they have opened a Pandora's box. And uh, at the time, he was an attorney for the Alliance Defense Fund. Uh, okay. That's what he believes. He's not going to tell you that anymore. But that's what he believes. Uh, but he does have an adopted black son. And to his credit, he did say some amazing words after the brutal killing of George Floyd. What did you feel when you watched the video of George Floyd being killed? I was outraged. Uh, I don't think anyone can view the video and objectively come to any other conclusion but that it was an act of, of murder. And uh, I felt that initially, as everyone did. Uh, it's so disturbing. And, you know, the underlying issues... Uh, beneath that or something that the country is now uh, struggling with. And I, I think it's something we have to look at um, very soberly and with a lot of empathy. And, and I'm, I'm glad to see that's happening around the country. That clip, by the way, pissed off his Republican base. They're pissed off that he said that. Here he is talking about his adopted black son. You know, what it's taught me is we now have four other children uh, of our own. And uh, my oldest son, Jack, ironically, this year is 14. And I've thought often through all these ordeals over the last couple of weeks about the difference in the experiences between my two 14-year-old sons, Michael being a black American and Jack being white, Caucasian. They have different uh, challenges. Uh, my son Jack has an easier path. He just does. They're, the interesting thing about both of these kids, Michael and Jack, is they're both handsome, articulate, really talented kids, gifted by God to do lots of things. But the reality is, and no one can tell me otherwise, my son Michael had a harder time than my son Jack is going to have simply because of the color of his skin. And that's a reality. It's an uncomfortable, painful one to acknowledge. But people have to recognize that's a fact. Okay, so th those are powerful words. And I give him credit. Uh, however, Josh Marshall over at Talking Points Memos says Mike Johnson can't seem to get his facts straight when he talks about the kid he adopted. Uh, now, Josh Marshall over Talking Points figures the kid, the black kid he adopted, would now be 40. But in this clip I just played you, Johnson is, that was like in 2020, he's saying the kid is 15. So he, okay. 
But here he is talking. Uh, here's the speaker with his black son and his wife. And uh, to his credit, uh, listen to what he says about racial injustice. What should we do about that? I think that we need uh, we really do need systematic change. I think we need transformative solutions. Right. And then during a hearing this year about reparations, he pounded uh, the, the, the table and said, no reparations. And don't accuse me of being a racist because I have a black son. So uh, I don't know. So what do I think? I think like Kevin McCarthy, he got to be speaker because he talks out of both sides of his ass. He's a politician who tells people what they want to hear. He leads with religion. He tells people he's praying for them. He's praying over decisions before he makes them. I think the honeymoon period with his fractious Republican caucus isn't going to last much longer. They're already pissed at him for talking about his black son and coming out against Derek Chauvin, the police officer who killed George Floyd. I found that clip from a right wing website that has lost its love affair with uh, Speaker Johnson because of this. So I don't know how much longer he can keep this uh, caucus jerry rigged. His sincerity is very convincing, but he can't be trusted. Just like Kevin McCarthy, he's a liar. He said he wants a national abortion ban, but then he goes on Fox and says it's not doable. He says homosexuality is a sin. He says it's a sickness, but then says he stands with the Supreme Court's decision on same-sex marriage Kind of like the same way every Supreme Court nominee who voted to overturn Roe said during their confirmation hearings that Roe was the law of the land and they saw no need to overturn it. Kavanaugh said that. Gorsuch said it. Barrett said it. Clarence Tom. They all said there's no reason to relitigate Roe. It's settled law. So... We're talking about theocratic fascists like Speaker Mike Johnson, and they see nothing wrong with lying because they're lying for the right reasons. These are theocratic fascists. Here is Marjorie Taylor Greene on Thursday telling Fox News why she couldn't vote for Tom Emmer as whip because he wanted to make it easier for people to vote. Um, he also, uh, you know, once had had supported the voting rights, uh, the national voting movement that was completely against what we stand for um, so that we can't have that for a Speaker of the House. We can't have a Speaker of the House who believes in democracy. This is the question that you should be asking these theocratic fascists. Do you believe in democracy? Do you believe everybody should vote? Meanwhile, as I said, Johnson's honeymoon with his fractious Republican caucus should be ending by Monday. Upon ascending to the speakership, it was assumed that the warring parties within the Republican caucus would give him a grace period to literally get his house in order. Johnson floated extending the continuing resolution 
which expires on November 17th into January or possibly April of next year. But on Thursday, this was considered somewhat reasonable. On Thursday, it was reasonable considering that both Steve Scalise and Jim Jordan, when they were the nominees for speaker, confessed to Republicans they saw no way they would have the 2024 budget finished before the continuing resolution runs out. One of Johnson's selling points to this caucus was he voted against the current continuing resolution that's keeping our government running. He was for the the continuing resolution that had 30% across the board cuts. So the sense was on Thursday that because Johnson voted against the continuing resolution, he could be trusted with an extension of it because he knew that it's wrong. But right now, members of the far-right Freedom Caucus are already grumbling at the prospect of an extension of this continuing resolution going past November 17th. Andy Biggs of Arizona said that he's hearing there are more than five Republicans, including Andy Biggs, who would gladly tank an extension and have the government shut down. They would rather see the government shut down than extend the continuing resolution into January. Johnson told Fox News on Thursday, President Biden's $106 billion funding bill for Ukraine, Israel, and Taiwan was too ambitious and said he would prefer to bifurcate it so they can vote on each country's aid package separately. He broke with the far-right members of his caucus. Okay, his first full day on the job as speaker, he already broke with the far right when he told Fox he supports funding for Ukraine and warned that if we don't stop Putin in Ukraine, Putin's aggression will spread to other European nations. This is a very different tune. We heard him singing when he ran for speaker, telling the caucus he opposed more funding for Ukraine. I don't know how long he's going to be able to keep it together. This guy is as big a liar to the caucus as Kevin McCarthy is. Then Fox News's Sean Hannity pressed Johnson on the Biden impeachment inquiry. And once again, he showed himself, Johnson showed himself to be a shrewd parser of words that will eventually bite him in the ass with his caucus. Uh, while Hannity made his factually challenged case that Biden took bribes from foreign governments, Johnson nodded in agreement and said Hannity summed up the case against the Biden family perfectly. But, but you got the sense Johnson was just feeding the base, agreeing that it looks and smells a lot like corruption but he cautioned this is only the investigative phase of the impeachment. Unlike Democrats, he added, Democrats who couldn't wait to impeach Donald Trump, I want to see where the facts take us. So he promised the caucus he was going to make sure Biden was impeached. And now he doesn't seem too keen on 
going through with the impeachment. Why not? Well, impeachments gain velocity on their own and are often difficult, if not possible, for speakers to keep uh, from snowballing into national hysteria. And when that happens, speakers have no choice but to consent to an impeachment, and they really don't want one. Johnson is trying not to come across as a fire-breathing Republican, like Jim Jordan, who thought his sole mission was to destroy the Biden crime family. And I have a feeling Johnson doesn't think it's politically astute next year for Republicans to pursue a sitting president and remove him from office, especially after Republicans spent all of 2023 convincing American voters that they have absolutely no idea how to government, how to govern. Impeachments smell like a government shutdown. It's not what the American people want. It feels like Congress would be attempting to reverse election results. And you can tell that Johnson doesn't want to do it. And there's going to be hell to pay in his Republican Congress if he doesn't follow through with this because he promised Marjorie Taylor Greene an impeachment. I would be surprised if he's still speaker by Monday. One senses that Johnson's top priority is passing a 2024 budget, not impeachment. But he is an election denier, beholden to a far-right extremist caucus under the thrall of Donald Trump. Donald Trump, who remains committed to avenging his own two impeachments, as well as what he fictitiously insists was a stolen 2020 election. So Johnson may have no choice but to go all in on impeachment no matter what the facts are. I have an update on Twitter. We talked about it yesterday. Now the Washington Post reports that it's been a year since Elon Musk spent $44 billion to buy Twitter. The Post reports that previously unreleased data show a 30% decrease in the number of people actively tweeting. The Post says Musk is losing advertising as his investment is turning out to be a complete bust. But he has kept his promise to make sure Twitter is less woke, very less woke. The Post performed a detailed analysis of Twitter accounts and determined that left-leaning or liberal Twitter accounts found themselves overshadowed by right-leaning or conservative accounts, which saw massive spikes in audience share and follows, while liberal and leftist Twitter accounts just seemed to lag. Musk, if you remember, has reinstated several extreme right-wing accounts, including Donald Trump's, said he's voting for DeSantis, and forged a business partnership on Twitter with Tucker Carlson. All right, let's now turn to the nightmare that is the Israel-Hamas war. The lights, phones, and internet are out in Gaza this morning as Israel continues to pummel northern Gaza with aerial bombardments. There are reports that Israel has begun its ground invasion with tanks inside Gaza. There are reports it has begun. 193 countries comprising the UN General Assembly on Friday 
voted in favor of a resolution calling for an immediate ceasefire between Israel and Hamas. The resolution called for humanitarian aid and railed against the possible forced transfer of Palestinians out of Gaza. Canada attempted to add an amendment condemning Hamas for the October 7th attacks, but it failed to get the requisite two-thirds vote to be added. America joined 14 other nations in voting against this resolution. Infamy is the word Israel used to describe passage of the resolution. It is pretty amazing that they couldn't get uh, a UN resolution that called for humanitarian aid, a ceasefire, and condemned the Hamas attacks. It's amazing that the UN would not condemn the Hamas attack. That's incredible. Israel warned a ceasefire would only provide Hamas's 40,000 soldiers in Gaza with more time to rearm. Israeli intelligence is reportedly shocked by the seemingly endless supply of weapons that have poured into Gaza despite Israel and Egypt's nearly 16-year blockade. The official Palestinian news agency says that 110 Palestinians in the West Bank have died in skirmishes with Israeli military since war broke out with Hamas in Gaza. Israel is relying on the nation of Qatar for back-channel negotiations to release the 229 hostages taken during Hamas's deadly attack on October 7th, killing at least 1,400 Israelis. Israel ordered the one million Palestinians living in northern Gaza to head south as it prepares to do battle with roughly 40,000 Hamas soldiers. But Hamas is not a standing army. It relies on guerrilla warfare blending in with the population, making this the bloodiest type of combat uh, that short of leveling the area from above completely, often puts the invading combatants with superior firepower at a distinct disadvantage. America has learned this lesson countless times, especially during the Iraq war in Mosul and Fallujah. Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu promised to destroy Hamas. He said a ground invasion of Gaza is imminent, we are getting reports that it has begun, uh, despite the United States warning to hold off on the ground invasion, fearing a ground attack could jeopardize the release of the hostages and also jeopardize getting humanitarian aid into southern parts of Gaza, where civilians are huddled while Israeli airstrikes bombard northern Gaza, attempting to destroy Hamas's vast network of underground infrastructure. There are now reports that Israeli airstrikes have cut off internet service in Gaza and shut down two major cell phone networks, making it much harder for Hamas to coordinate its responses and attacks. The Palestinian Red Crescent reported that without phone service, ambulances can't be called. Most phone service in Gaza is now down. The U.S. Department of Treasury estimates Hamas has $500 million to finance its war effort. 
Janet Yellen, America's Treasury Secretary, said on Friday, the United States is exploring new methods to freeze that money. Before the war, 500 humanitarian aid trucks poured into Gaza each day. Now, the United Nations is averaging 12, 12 humanitarian aid trucks a day for 2 million residents. UN Secretary General Antonio Guterres said Gaza is facing a total collapse with unimaginable consequences for more than 2 million civilians. The October 7th massacre in Israel is turning out to be one of the intelligence community's worst failures in history. Jake Sullivan, President Biden's national security advisor, days before the October 7th slaughter, wrote a 7,000-word essay for Foreign Affairs magazine where he said with confidence that the Middle East is quieter than it has been for decades. He added, quote, we have de-escalated the crisis in Gaza. That's our national security advisor who Joe Biden gets his advice from. Just published that in Foreign Affairs magazine. We have de-escalated the crisis in Gaza. On this show, during the past two years, I have stated repeatedly that Israel has never seemed to be more secure in its nearly 75-year history. I said, with Saudi Arabia and other key players in the region normalizing relations with Israel, all that remained was figuring out what to do about a two-state solution with the Palestinians. It seemed like the Israelis had broken the Palestinians in both Gaza and the West Bank. It seemed that way. It seemed like Israel's biggest problems before October 7th, it seemed like Israel's biggest problems came from within. Power grabs by Benjamin Netanyahu appeared more menacing than his land grabs in East Jerusalem and the West Bank. We got it all wrong. Despite the billions spent on a vast array of intelligence networks, and Middle East experts who write in foreign affairs. They're simply, despite all the money spent gathering intelligence, there is no substitute for common sense, something America and Israel are in short supply of. As long as 2 million Palestinians live in an open-air prison, Gaza remains a tinderbox. Problems don't go away by ignoring them, they fester and get worse. So, eventually, Israel must decide what precisely it wants. Do you want to avenge the deaths of those 1,400 innocents? Or do you want to make certain something like that never happens again? These are questions that have to be answered. Can the thirst for justice be sated? Can the perpetrators of the attack be hunted down killed and or arrested, perhaps, but at what cost? We know there was no negotiating with Hitler or the Nazis. It required total war. Indiscriminate aerial night bombings where civilian casualties were expected due to the inaccuracies that flow from bombing missions in the cloak of darkness. 
We were prepared for that. Actually, America wasn't prepared for that, but Great Britain was. We wouldn't do, America wouldn't do bombing missions at night during World War II over Germany because of civilian casualties, but Great Britain had no problem with collateral damage. Are the leaders of Hamas Hitler, are they truly committed to wiping out the state of Israel as their constitution so states? Can you wipe out Hamas without wiping out the two million Palestinians they use as human shields? Can you negotiate with terrorists? We do that all the time. We negotiate with terrorists all the time. Is there any way of setting the clock back to October 6 before this nightmare was unleashed? Do the Israelis or the Palestinians want that? Do Hamas and Israel, as Thomas Friedman of the New York Times fears, want to settle this right now, once and for all? Is that what's going on right now? Does Israel, does Hamas think they're going to settle this once and for all? How realistic is it for Israel or Hamas to think this war right now can settle things once and for all? Short of turning Gaza into glass, Israel and Hamas will eventually sit down at the bargaining table. Does negotiating with Hamas make Israel look like a weak and pitiful giant that has grown soft, lacking a military with the fiery resolve it once had? I suspect these are questions nagging the Israeli people. They're wondering, have we gone soft? Are we no longer willing to make the sacrifices necessary to keep ourselves safe? They're wondering if negotiating is the coward's way out, and does it come with a heavy price down the road? Would a ground assault into Gaza be more about Israel proving to itself that it still has the resolve? And if so, is that the best motivation to go into battle? As usual, Americans are left with so many unanswered questions. That's because our leaders in Washington who subsidize the weapons industry refuse to ask the big question. How do we stop all this killing in Israel, Ukraine, and Maine? I'm David Feldman, <clears throat> reminding you to stay strong and protect the week. Uh, there's no poll tonight. I think the, the ground assault is beginning. Uh, all right. Thank you to uh, the people in the chat room. Thank you for showing up at this late hour. Uh, I will see everybody uh, Monday night or early Monday morning. Thank you. <laughs>